1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Senegal is known as one of West Africa's most stable countries, but not in recent days. Protests exploded after the last plausible opposition figure was detained. It's not just anger about politics that's spilling out into the streets, though. And there was a time when mobile phone owners could express their individuality through the medium of ringtones. Song snippets and viral clips were big business, yet no one thinks about them now. We investigate a sharp change in tones. But first, This week, America's House of Representatives will vote on a sweeping COVID relief bill. It's the final hurdle before the $1.9 trillion piece of legislation ends up on President Joe Biden's desk. Everything in this package is designed to relieve the suffering and to meet the most most urgent needs of the nation. In its final form, the bill follows the White House's wish list pretty closely. $1,400 checks for most Americans and billions of dollars in funding for vaccines, testing, and reopening schools. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said funds would be sent out swiftly.
0: We expect a large number of Americans to receive relief uh, by the end of the month.
1: The vote in the House is expected to be an easy one. The tricky part was getting the bill through the Senate, which happened over the weekend. There, Democrats have the thinnest possible majority, a diverse caucus, and painstaking parliamentary rules to follow. And the particulars of the bill's passage are an indication of the coming political combat in Washington.
2: Republican senators tried to limit the bill a bit. Idris Colun is The Economist's Washington correspondent. So they forced a reading of the entire bill on the Senate floor.
0: Of any grant from amounts made available under this paragraph for public
2: service... They also issued a series of amendment votes, and one of the votes on whether or not to include a minimum wage actually took the cake as the longest vote in Senate history, about 12 hours.
3: We can no longer tolerate... Millions of our workers being unable to feed their families because they are working for starvation wages.
2: By the end of the affair, Chuck Schumer, who's the Democratic leader in the Senate, sounded tired but exultant about the results.
1: It's been a long day, a long night, a long year. But a new day has come. And we tell the American people, help is on the way.
2: It passed along party lines. Every Democrat voted in favor and every Republican was in opposition. And not very much changed between the House version and the Senate version. You said that not much had changed. I mean, what did? There were a few tweaks made to the bill. The biggest change was that the effort to increase the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour had to be ditched. The reason for that is a bit obscure. In order to avoid a filibuster— The Senate had to use a process called budgetary reconciliation, which requires that all of the changes in the bill be principally related to the budget. And the parliamentarian, who is this unelected official who judges whether or not things satisfy the rules of reconciliation, had decided that the minimum wage effort was mostly regulatory and not budgetary. And so for that reason, it had to go. The other big change was the unemployment benefits that the federal government has been issuing in addition to the state benefits. So these had been set at $300 per week. The House had proposed raising these to $400, and the Senate decided to keep it at $300.
1: So that's what's not in it. What is in it? Any big victories for the Democrats here?
2: So in a bill this big, it's easy to miss some of the things that flew a bit under the radar. The most significant is the really large increase to the child tax credit, which will now become something like a monthly child allowance. And for young children, that'll mean $3,600 a year. And for children above the age of six, it'll mean $3,000 going to the families. That was coupled with a large increase in the earned income tax credit, which subsidizes the wages for low-income workers, and also child care tax credits. All of those changes in total are estimated to have child poverty within the year. These changes are temporary, although Democrats say that they really want to make sure that they become permanent. But that's a very, very significant change in the way that the welfare state works in America.
1: And the question that we've posed before on the show is the the degree to which it's too much, and, and perhaps by now, whether it's too much too late, especially given the jobs numbers we saw on Friday slowly ticking up. I mean, what, what's your take on that?
2: Yeah, the economic recovery has been stronger than expected. And, for example, state budgets have not fallen as much as feared. The other thing to keep in mind in terms of the fears for people who think that overheating is around the corner is that Biden is also planning a very large infrastructure bill, probably on the order of, of $2 trillion, if not more. So in terms of, of thinking about what might happen, you also have to account for that very large stimulus that is coming down the way.
1: There had been a lot of talk that the, the moderate wing of the Democratic Party would would kind of obstruct things more, tear, tear this, this bill apart. Why didn't that happen?
2: So a lot of people in Washington have started to specialize in the study of, of Joe Manchin, who is the moderate Democratic senator from West Virginia. He is seen as the swing vote on all of Senate business. And the Manchinologists, I think, have been a bit wrong about how obstructive he's going to be. What I think that showed is that it's hard to predict what he's going to do. I mean, the other moderate Democrat, Kristen Sinema, was also in favor of the vast majority of his package. One thing that we've learned is that the moderate flank of the Democratic Party and even the left flank of the Democratic Party has not been nearly as obstructive as the right wing and, and moderate flanks of Republicans were when they were in the majority.
1: And given this this first big legislative victory for the new administration, in, in thinking about how the bill got passed, can you see indications of what the next few years of, of governing will look like?
2: Democrats were really not hindered by this idea that there would be much bipartisan negotiating. There was a brief effort from 10 Republican senators to try and convince Biden to go for a smaller bill, about a third of the size. That resulted in a polite meeting of the White House and really nothing much else beyond that. And so it shows that Democrats are willing to use the means at their disposal. They have unified control of the House, the Senate, and the White House in order to get their agenda through. It had to be forced through reconciliation, which meant there's an incentive to cram all of your objectives in all at once. And so... Even if a Republican might have voted, for example, on the child poverty provisions, they probably would not have gone along with the entirety of the package. And so that's why you end up with something that passes entirely through party lines. In terms of Biden's discussion that he was hoping for some reemergence of bipartisan unity and such, it's clear that that doesn't mean waiting for Republicans to negotiate with him before pursuing his agenda.
1: And so is is this the kind of legislative fight and, and, and ultimate passing that we can expect to see again, do you think, especially in light of that infrastructure bill?
2: Yes, absolutely. I don't expect that there will be 10 Republican votes in the Senate that would be needed to pass a bill through regular order to surmount the threat of a filibuster. And so I expect that you're going to see Democrats rely on these reconciliation measures, try to cram everything possible that they can into these very, very large bills and get them through on straight party-line votes. Now that's doable for things like stimulus spending and taxing and even the infrastructure bill, but on other Democratic priorities such as H.R. 1, which is this bill that would reform the way that states are able to conduct their elections, which Democrats see as a way of heading off voter suppression efforts by Republicans— you know, something like reconciliation actually doesn't work.
1: And most recently, you've been thinking about the dynamics within the Republican Party itself, right? That's what you spoke about on our American politics show, Checks and Balance.
2: So the state of the GOP is actually the topic of last Friday's episode, and it's pegged to Trump's re-emergence from hiding of sorts with his sort of victorious speech at CPAC, very much showing that he's still in charge of the party.
1: With your help, we will take back the House. We will win the Senate. And then...
4: A Republican president will make a triumphant return to the White House. And I wonder who that will be.
1: And checks and balance, of course, available wherever fine podcasts are sold and traded. Idris, thanks very much for your time.
2: Thanks for having me, Jason.
0: What's next in innovation? That's not the right question.
1: Senegal is experiencing its worst political violence in at least a decade. Since the middle of last week, it's been engulfed by widespread protests. The spark was the arrest of Ousmane Sonko, the country's leading opposition figure for public disorder. Since then, at least eight people have been killed as clashes with the police have spread.
4: Sonko's supporters burned tires and threw rocks at riot police near his house. who responded with tear gas.
1: Now, a normally sedate corner of West Africa is very much on edge.
3: Well, in Dakar in recent days, it's been pretty tense.
1: Kinley Salmon is one of our Africa correspondents.
3: There's been a lot of tear gas used by police on protesters. Uh, There's been a number of attacks on businesses, particularly on supermarkets. And really, in many ways, running skirmishes in the streets in a lot of the capital between police and protesters. On Monday, though, the mood was slightly more celebratory when Sonko was released on bail. And so while there was still a bit of tension, uh, protesters at least were in a better mood. But people have been very worried. Over the weekend, the chief mediator at a position here in Senegal, that person said that the country was on the verge of an apocalypse, and those worries haven't entirely gone away.
1: And all this unrest was sparked by the arrest of Sonko, the opposition leader. What do you make of the charges against him?
3: Sonko was arrested for public disorder, but actually while he was on his way to court to answer a separate rape charge, uh, he denies that charge and says it's politically motivated. Of course, we have no way to know What's really true about that, but protesters certainly claim President Mackie Sall is targeting opposition leaders uh, through the legal system. And they point out that two others have been arrested and jailed during his tenure as well. Of course, Mr. Sall says these aren't politically motivated charges whatsoever.
1: And so is the view here that President Sall sees Sanko as a threat?
3: Sonko is particularly popular with young Senegalese and he's really the only remaining serious challenger in the opposition to the president so it's quite a high stakes situation for that reason but it isn't just about Sonko himself many of the protesters see this as a threat to democracy some have been calling Mr Sall a dictator and above all they suspect that president Sall wants to run for a third term a possibility which he hasn't really commented on. The constitution says he can't do that, but it was updated uh, during his tenure. And so he may argue, as some other presidents in the region have in the recent past, that by having a new constitution, the clock on term limits is reset.
1: And so all of this protest is around that broader political point then.
3: You know, people are certainly angry about the politics, but they're also worried about the economy and upset about it. There's a real sense that there's just a lack of opportunities and a lack of jobs for young people in Senegal. People are fed up with COVID curfews and COVID restrictions, which have been in place in various forms for about a year. And there's also you know, gripes about elite corruption. Uh, there's been controversy about how Senegal's oil and gas uh, fines are being handled and people on the street are raising that as well. And so it's political, but it's also broader than that.
1: So in that sense, kind of a, a broad boiling over, I guess. I mean, Senegal is known as a fairly stable part of West Africa.
3: Yeah, Senegal very much is known as a beacon of stability in the region. And the scale of protests, these have been not just in the capital, Dakar, but really right across the country. And they've also been quite violent. And protesters have been, you know, burning tyres, there have been stones thrown at police. Some businesses, and in particular French businesses like Total um, and Ocean, which is a supermarket chain, have been targeted. That's partly because this anger at France as the former colonizer which is seen to still dominate the economy and also considered to have close ties to President Salle, according to protesters. It's important to emphasize that there have been plenty of peaceful marches too, but overall this has been quite a shock uh, to many Senegalese just how big and how serious this has become.
1: And how has the government responded to it all? Well,
3: the government- Response, I think it's fair to say, was initially quite heavy handed, and that possibly made things worse. Last week, they shut down two private television stations for their coverage of the protests. The government also throttled social media, and then police have been pretty trigger happy on tear gas. Following violence in the capital last week, the Interior Minister Antoine felix Abdelay Diome vowed to use all means necessary for a return of order. L'Etat mettra tous les moyens et en train d'ailleurs de le faire. And speaking on national TV, he accused Sonko of issuing calls to violence. By Monday, there were military patrolling in the streets here in the capital too. Then yesterday, the president did make an address to the nation. I also understand, dear concitoyens that the that expressed these days he changed the curfew back to midnight, it had been at 9 p.m., and talked about the need for unity and the challenges that the country faced, but didn't really address, I think it's fair to say, head on the concerns of protesters.
1: Well, you said that Sonko had been released, the mood was a little more jubilant. Is, is that to say things will be coming to a close, do you think?
3: Well, that's right. On Monday, Sonko was released on bail, and he too gave a press conference.
2: La mobilisation.
3: he did in that press conference urge the protesters to continue although we should emphasize he also was keen to point out that those protests should be peaceful so I think although it's likely his release will hopefully calm things down a little bit I don't think this is going to disappear quickly uh, there are, as mentioned, deeper issues uh, that need to be addressed and they're ones that are, I think, familiar uh, not just to youth in Senegal but actually in other parts of the region in Africa in general uh, there is, you know, real challenge of job opportunities for young people, a level of dissatisfaction with economic prospects, as well as kind of a concern that leaders just don't move on when they're meant to under the constitution and an eroding of democratic norms that go with that. That set of issues can really be quite explosive, as we've seen in the last few days in Senegal, but it's also something that echoes more widely.
1: Thanks very much for joining us, Kinley. Thank you. At a summit in Chile in 2007, Juan Carlos, then King of Spain, lost his cool when Venezuela's president Hugo Chávez called a former Spanish prime minister a fascist. If it had happened today, the remark would generate a multitude of memes within seconds. But back then, it was made into a viral ringtone. Before smartphones and social media conquered the tech landscape, the ringtone was a cherished form of personal expression.
4: Cuss and ringtones rose to prominence in the late 1990s and early 2000s.
1: Saskia Solomon writes for 1843, our sister magazine.
4: It was a way of individualizing what was becoming a very conspicuous object, which was the phone.
1: And how did ringtones in in that sense come about?
4: The first ringtones were monophonic, meaning that they were very simple approximations of the song they were meant to represent. And in 2004, they released new technology that would enable users to add polyphonic ringtones to their catalogues, which would mean that instead of having a very, very basic rendition of a piece of music, you could have an actual sample of the song. This came with different legal implications for the ringtone providers, but it meant that the customers were more likely to purchase the song at a higher fee this opportunity presented by the ringtone was at one point quite attractive but on the other quite worrying because there was a lack of trust in technology at the time it was a life raft for a music industry that was in a period of great change because music streaming sites like napster and limewire were threatening its very core the internet sort of seemed like a place where music was stolen rather than appreciated so It took a while for music companies to get on board with the idea, but once they did, it became a really lucrative concept.
1: And ringtones became a business in its own right?
4: It did. Ringtone providers cropped up everywhere with names like Jamster, Zingy, Monster Mob and Dwango. And the ringtones business became massive very, very quickly. By 2003, sales of ringtones actually overtook those of CD singles. And musicians also got in the game. The rapper 50 Cent, who's hit in the club was the recipient of Billboard magazine's inaugural Ringtone of the Year award in 2004, released a whole series of original jingles. And then Madonna made music history in 2005 by releasing her single Hung Up as a ringtone before it was even aired on the radio. And then there was Crazy Frog,
2: which made
4: more than £40 million in the UK in 2005.
1: But it seemed that that inexorable rise eventually did end, though. I haven't thought about ringtones or or how to change mine in literal years.
4: Yes. The iPhone was launched in 2007, and with it came a set of ringtones. And as we all know, the marimba ringtone became the well-known one of the selection And to hear the marimba ringtone in public would be to signal your possession of an iPhone as opposed to another phone. So that became a status symbol for a while. But gradually, with the creation of shared office spaces, there began a new mobile phone etiquette. Once more people had phones, knew how to use them, and became more tech literate, it became less a need to advertise your personality through your ringtone, or even to advertise the fact that you have a phone, but really to show that you know how to use it and know how to turn it off in a social setting so that it doesn't become obnoxious or distracting. So mostly now, phones, you'll find that when people are out in public, are either on silent or on vibrate only.
1: So what to make of this ringtone phase the world went through?
4: So the ringtone was the first cries of life of the phone, In some ways, you could say it was as annoying as a baby crying in a cinema. Depending on who you ask, it was both adorable and frustrating, but very memorable and a part of our shared tech history and our shared history of phone ownership that will always be looked on as a sort of nostalgic experience. And I think even though we've moved on from that, it will still have a very cosy place in our telephone memories.